Jen Bosworth Ramirez. And I'm Gina Polici. We went to theater school together. We survived it, but we didn't quite understand it. 20 years later, we're digging deep, talking to our guests about their experiences and trying to make sense of it all. We survived theater school, and you will too. Are we famous yet? Just do it on here. You can still totally do it. Okay. So we can still totally do it. Explaining to everybody, we decided to make a list, each of us individually, about the things that we were embarrassed to admit, kind of keeping in this vein of like, it's all, let it all go, like, let all of your shame go. Yeah. So we'll see how it goes. Yeah, the shame, the shame, dispel the shame. Yeah. Well, I have, I have, I have the mother of all, oh, I am so embarrassed about this. I mean, it kind of ended well, but it was really bad. So we, you know, for listeners and new listeners at, you know, we went to theater school and at the end, you've probably heard us if you've listened and I hope you have talk about the showcase in Los Angeles, which is where you go. And when we went, you did a monologue that was totally probably inappropriate, not good unless you're like one person that, but most monologues are okay. So I did my monologue. My monologue was from a Nikki silver play. I don't remember which one. And I don't, and I think it was totally inappropriate, but, um, it's just crazy, like a crazy hysterical woman. I, I, not good. So I do my monologue and I'm totally nervous and I feel totally um, less than and just not, um, I don't feel right. I feel <laughs> wrong. Everything feels wrong about me. So after, after that, I, what I, I just immediately start drinking profusely because that's the thing that you should really do when you're trying to really help your self-esteem is just start drinking profusely. And so I was drinking profusely and who walks up to me, but John C. Riley walks up to me. He, he went to the theater school. And so he was being very supportive and very whatever. And he walks up to me and he said, I just want to say, I really liked your piece. Great. That would have been the opening. So many other people would have taken that as an opportunity (laughs) to network with a movie, a budding movie star at the time and a nice guy, by the way. But what comes out of my mouth is I hated Boogie Nights. (laughs) That comes out of my mouth. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. God. Gina, Gina, Gina. That's not the worst part about it. The worst part is Gina. I had never seen Boogie Nights. Wow. I lied. That's I lied about seeing Boogie. I had never seen Boogie Nights. I had never seen it. I don't know what happened to me. I I I went crazy. I was so ashamed of myself that I just started saying random lying insults i don't know (laughs) wait so so like i'm trying to get the get the scene here you okay i'm guessing that what happened for you (laughs) you felt badly about your (laughs) monologue and so when he said that thing to you you felt it wasn't genuine and he was maybe even mocking you so you wanted to say something nasty to him he was being sincere it turns out. I think yeah. He he was. And the guy, so I say I hated boogie nights. And the guy says, and John C. Riley says, 
what any nice person would say, which is, why? But I hadn't seen it. Oh, my God. So what am I going to say? So what I said was, I think it was chauvinistic. I'm so embarrassed. (laughs) It was chauvinistic and didn't depict women in a good way. I had no idea if that was true or not because I hadn't seen Boogie Nights. So then he says, oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. And then he introduced me to his wife, who was lovely, and I scurried away. So, okay. So I was mortified. I, I, I felt like the one person who gave me any attention at that showcase, I spit in his face, lied to, I mean, it, 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 it's unbelievable, the, the idiot that I was. I'm so embarrassed. And and so I just carried that shame for so, so long. And one day I said, I'm going to find John C. Riley. This is like in 2008 after my dad died. And I'm going to try to make amends. <laughs> so I go online, I go on Facebook and I try to find him and I find who I think is him. But who knows? I didn't know what I was doing. And I write this long apology about self-esteem and my drinking and I get a response back from him but I don't know if it's him saying um, I got your message of course I remember you your monologue was great but now looking back I don't know if it was him it was some Facebook account it could have just been some some person with a fan Facebook page writing me back Gina so I still am embarrassed and I don't know (laughs) (laughs) wow wow did you feel good after you wrote the apology? Yes. Okay. I, I, and I wish I, I might still have it somewhere. I'm going to look. It was just like, listen, you said all these things to me that were nice. And I lied. I, I came clean about the whole thing. But I don't think it was really John C. Riley because John C. Riley is not going to have like a Facebook page. No, no. I don't know. But you definitely have to take screenshots of that. And we'll put it up on our Instagram. That's that's beautiful. And okay. But I, the others, my other takeaway for that is like, Yeah, maybe it was regrettable, but at the same time, it seems like one of the things that has emerged is if you had gotten a lot of attention, and probably me too, um, I'm not certain that our story would have been one of the ones that went the right way. You know what I mean? Like, I was actually just thinking about this this morning. I was thinking about how many female actors that I have loved over the years. And then every once in a while, I'm like, whatever happened to that person? A lot of it got revealed in the Harvey Weinstein of it all because we learned how many careers he ruined. But I think, I think that there's a bajillion other more like mundane reasons that, that, and it's things like that. I mean, not necessarily like embarrassing yourself, but you go down this path and it's like, it's, you're not ready for it. And then you blow it up in some kind of way. And I think if you do that and then you blow it up, then you feel maybe inhibited from ever trying to return to it, which is not the position that we're in. So I guess. No, that makes me feel better because really I was like, so ashamed that I, Blue, but you, but I was so ashamed, but also looking at it now and hearing you, I am grateful that I happened sooner rather than later. It's not like I was on set and like, you know, I don't know, shot someone or did something crazy right, right. or like or overdosed on drugs and 
and you know, you know, whatever. But it was not, and and apparently he's like the nicest person. Yeah, that's what, that's what Hoogs was saying. Is the nice? He said you're the only person in America who's had a bad interaction with John C. Riley. And it's totally my fault. My fault. Like I did it. But you know, it's the truth. It's what happened. And you know what? I remember feeling beans in that moment is so alone so utterly alone. Like I didn't have it, a lot of friends in that class because I had come back to a different class, right? I didn't feel like I fit in there. I didn't feel like I fit in in LA. I didn't feel like I fit in anywhere. And so here's this guy trying to be nice to me who has some status and, and and is, is you know, quote, making it. And I just couldn't take it. I just couldn't take it in. And I had to just vomit. I said, I vomited lie, a lie all all over yeah. You. <laughs> yeah. No, I, but I totally get it, man. I, we're, we're so at that point in the whole theater school career, we're so tripped out about the whole thing. I mean, whether it's, you're a person who thinks, who has every thought that you're going to make it, you're tripped out about that. And if you're a person who has every thought that you're not going to make it, you're tripped out about that. I mean, it's just, it's such a weirdo time and I can't wait. So we got, a friend of ours introduced us to a current theater school student via email. So hopefully we'll be able to interview him and, and get, cause we have now we, we the, this whole time I've been like, how are you doing theater school on zoom? I, I, I can't possibly imagine trying to learn. It's so physical. It's so visceral. It's so right. But they're getting like some camera training that, you know, <laughs> that they might not have otherwise gotten. So that's a good thing. Right. And maybe they know how to go Facebook live with their audition. They probably do. I'm such a grandma. Okay. So tell me about your. Okay. So my, the first one on my list is I don't know who Norman Mailer is. I listen to things. I listen to podcast. His name comes up all the time. I I have a vague understanding that he's like an intellectual. I think he's a writer. I don't know what he's written about. I don't know the, you know, the cultural historical significance of him. I could look it up, but I never did. And it's just one of those things that every time it comes up and somebody says like, oh, you know, like that Norman Mailer thing, I'm always like, uh, uh, sure, yeah, I, I get it. Because it's it's like the thing of where I should know it by now. It's happened. It's come up enough times that I should have taken the time, but I never did. Norman Mailer. Okay. I, I, I can't say I know who that is either. So we're in the same boat there. <laughs> so we're in the same boat. And that ties into my number two. I made a list, by the way, that has 22 things on it. Um, <laughs> that ties into my number two, which is I have so many books that I've never read. I recently reorganized my library and I'm like, oh, that looks like a great book I've never read. Oh, that, that looks like a really, that looks like a book I would love that I've never read. And I know that that's not unusual. Like everybody does that, but I, I feel I have a lot of books that I've never read. Okay. Yeah, that I can see that I can see I can see I my on my number two after John C. Riley is my love. I'm really embarrassed about my love of ketchup. Like, I, I love ketchup. And I equate it with unhealthy junk food, uh, not a real vegetable. What's you wrong put it with on, you? You put it on everything? Well, I would if yeah, I mean, I, 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 I would like we had chicken that was kind of dry, you know, I'm on this new heart healthy diet. So we had some chicken that was kind of dry. And the only thing that I could think of to put on was ketchup. And so then I'm eating this really healthy chicken breast with this Heinz ketchup packet that someone left here, you know, like, what am I, what? So I'm embarrassed about my ketchup because I equate it with like really shameful things. 
Yeah. That's funny. That's number two on my list. Well, I, I, I that's the kind of thing I would love. I, I don't happen to like ketchup, but I don't have a, like a value judgment about it. I don't think it's like a, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> like a, it's a low life food. Well, it's only unhealthy in the sense that it, it typically accompanies unhealthy things like French fries and hot dogs. But in and of itself, that that was the thing that famously Ronald Reagan tried to declare a vegetable in the school lunch thing. Yeah, yeah, that was like they make ketchup a vegetable. Um, but I wanted to ask you something about the John C. Riley thing. I've heard okay. you mentioned several times about drinking a lot, and I, yeah, I. It's not that I would have said you'd never drink, but I had no idea that you went through a heavy drinking. But was that when when I, when we were in touch? Um, not really. So it it started. I would say it started that senior year of um, DePaul and went into my LA life. Like in LA, we drank so much that we we started naming so what we drank everyone drank at my office all the time it wasn't a big drug scene but the alcohol was unbelievably liberally poured during the work day sometimes you know and we we would drink this dr- oh, this disgusting drink called we called them treadmills because once you started you couldn't stop which was diet dr pepper and malibu rum oh my god and it was like the sweetest, most, and I, we drank, when we drank, we probably drank six, seven of those at a, at a pop. And, and like, yeah. So my drinking career, like really took off in about in, in my last year at DePaul, because I felt like I didn't know anyone I was living with. I, it was not a good time. And then when I moved to LA, the drinking, the drinking was mm-hmm. just unbelievable. It was unbelievable. When did, a lot you, of sky- when did you stop? Well, I, I, you know, I think it was when my dad died that I, I really was like, you know, mm-hmm. this, I'm 30. This isn't the same with the cigarettes. I'm 30. This isn't cool anymore. Um, it made me super anxious. Hmm. So it made some people really loose. But for me, people are like, have a drink. It made the combination of alcohol and cigarettes. Something happened to me that I would just get super anxious. And the day after I would drink, I would get so depressed that I was like, this is not, and it never, I always say it never ended up good. Like whenever I would drink heavily, I ended up always in LA in a pool with mascara running down my face, fully clothed. Like that's not a good look. No, it's not. Well, it's the kind of thing that is charming until you're like 25 and then it's, yeah. it's, it's no longer. And then it's a pro and then it's, it's not fun for anybody involved. Yeah. So that's my Johnson. It's like he, he was the start of that kind mm-hmm. of behavior of like, I hate who I am. I'm so ashamed. Let me just drink and let me um, forget, just forget and not tell the truth about yeah. <laughs> my feelings. Yeah. Oh, right, my right, God. right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So what's number three on your list <sighs> or two? No, I choose. No, I have books that, that I've never read. Oh yeah. Well, and I guess it's also three is also sort of related to the first two. Just, uh, I went to public school in Sacramento, California, and I heard from the time I was, you know, probably in high school, like, oh, California has terrible public school system. But I really fancied myself as like not having been affected by that. Like I feel, and. In the intervening years, I have realized just 
huge gaps in my education, huge gaps in my understanding of like just basic things of, of, of like I never learned um, gra- grammar. I never learned. <laughs> now I'm not blaming this on this. I think probably somebody did try to teach me, but it wasn't like, I think my kids have, my kids have music that starts in kindergarten. There's always a music class. We didn't have that. We didn't learn anything about music. And, and I don't like, I barely understand what an adverb is. And one time I was trying to diagram sentences. I almost killed myself when when we did the unit on diagramming sentences. And I have a, like, and I, it's the same thing that I had with math, just like a real mental block about it. And now I, I'm a writer who is like really insecure about my understanding of the English language. <laughs> well, we're doing remarkably well for that to be true. You know, like That's true. people aren't like, uh, this is trash. So you can't. <laughs> right, um, right. I, yeah, yeah. Mine is sort of similar in that um, my number, it's funny. My number three is that I still count on my fingers. that's good I like that I'm really embarrassed about like if you ask me how many hours I've slept I go 8 to 9 I do that every time I do that too I think I think that's okay I what what I what I think is funny is I had a friend who in high school when she was driving she had to do this to be able to tell her left from her right I'm I'm holding up my two hands with my thumb and my index finger she in order to remind her and like she'd be driving and you'd say turn left and she had to put her hands up (laughs) she could she and you know it's like oh that's like some kind of thing yeah that sounds like a thing some kind of a thing you're on your fingers that's not that's not bad yeah this uh, one is it's not really embarrassing it's just like i can't tell any of these um actors and actresses in Hollywood who are under the age of 35, I, they all look, they literally all look like the same person. I mean, all the men look the same. When people talk about the Chris's, there's three or four Chris's. I'm like, that's one per. who are you? That's one person. I, I, I can't imagine that they're talking about m- multiple people. And then when I open the glossy magazines and I see some version of, of a skeleton and they all have the same makeup and the same, they're all some shade of honey blonde. Like I can't distinguish. Yep. I, I, I have, that's not on my list, but I have that exact same thing where I'm like, yeah, I feel really uh, irrelevant because I don't know. All these women have the same sort of highlights, like you said, ombre, like whatever mm-hmm. ombre thing mm-hmm. going on. They literally look like the same yeah. person to me. Yeah. It's going to be real, yeah, <laughs> not good big if head, I ever run into any of big them. Big heads, little bodies. Little bodies. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So um, okay. The other one, the other, let's see. What is the number? I have it on my phone here. Oh, 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 oh. This is sort of a a deep one. Like I was um, alone with my, with my, with my father when he died. No, my sister and my mother were not there. And I kind of take a secret delight in that, 
that they went and did other things while he died. And I, I have a like a self-righteousness about it that I'm embarrassed yeah. about, but I'm yeah. also really glad it was just me and him because I shared something special with him that I didn't have to share. with. I was thinking about that with my mom and my sister. So that's a deep one. That's like a psychological that, situation. It is deep, but I think it's completely understandable. And you just made me realize something, which is like, there is something that happens around death, and maybe it's particularly the death of a parent that makes the siblings get super competitive about like who did, you know, because the when my dad died, you know, he'd been sick for 11 years when by the time he finally died. And he, um, I was, he lived in California and I was living in California and like a year or even maybe last nine months before he died, I moved to Chicago. And so there was, we were constantly getting the phone call. It's the end and you have to come and say goodbye. And I had done one of these after I moved to Chicago and had flown back and, and he, and he didn't die. And I went home and then he died and my sister called me the next day and said, uh, I'm not kidding you. This is how the conversation went. Hello? Hey. Uh, I think she might even said, hey, how you doing? I'm okay. What's up? Uh, nothing. I just wanted to let you know that dad died last night. <gasps> I just wanted to let you know that dad died last night. Now, and you know, the other, the bookend story is that when she had her kids, uh, I found out about that the next day, even though I lived right there and I was supposed to be like her little helper. She called me the next day to, and, and it was like, so, and, and just the nonchalance about it. Anyway, my point is there, people do get a certain type of it's like ownership or like, it's so weird. Weird. Yeah. So weird. But I do, I feel a special kind of pride and self-righteousness about the fact that I told them too, that he was going to die. I knew it. And they chose to not be there and like, see who, and then, cause they always say, not they always, but people say sometimes like people pick who they're going to die with. I don't know if you like, who's going to be around them. I don't know if that's a big question crack of bullshit or not but um and so I feel special so that makes yeah. me feel special and yeah. I'm embarrassed that I feel special yeah. about that I'm like yeah dude I okay that's that. weird and yeah 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 okay um Should we do one more let's do one more each okay uh oh I gotta get a I have to get a good one hang on look through my okay through your files You know, it's funny going back through these. I'm like, that's not embarrassing. Yeah, but it was at the time. I don't know what the stock market is. I don't understand the stock market. I know that I like you and you can talk, you can explain it to me until you're blue in the face. But like, what is it? How do you have a company and then you just say it's worth this much and then you can buy it? <laughs> like, to me, it feels like pretend like. Yes. Like it's might as well be with monopoly money. Like you can buy stock in my company that I'm telling you how much it costs. And it doesn't mean you ha- have anything and right. value goes up, then you pretend have more money. And then the value goes down, you pretend right. have less money. 
And and even if you sell it and then you have real money, it's like you're just selling the, your pretend to another person. I I don't get it. I I don't I I don't know. It's either it's either that you don't get it, or are you a genius that really sees through the whole stock market no. to what it really is? No, I I don't know. I don't get it. I don't understand it. I want one of my favorite movies of all time is The Big Short because it explains the what happened that in, in a way that I. You know, and I, and I watch it over and over again. Sometimes in the hope that I'm gonna, it's like I my not my understanding just tops out at a certain point. I'm like, yeah, but what is the stock market? <laughs> That's fantastic. You have like like a meeting, like a high level meeting with someone who's trying, and you're like, okay, I have one more question, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen of the board. What is the stock market? They're like, oh, yeah, God. yeah, that's, that's yeah, 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 and that that it's such a huge part. I mean, it has so much of an impact on like the global economy, and it it just seems like it's all pretend. And I know it's pretend. I know it's billions of dollars, and it's and even Aaron, he plays the stock market. He has, and I'm like, yeah, what does that mean? You may. Because also then he says, I made money. Well, I didn't make money because I didn't sell it. But, you know, if I if I wanted to sell it right, right now. I mean, he, he's adding to the thing of, of that is pretend. Yeah. It's like I made money, but I actually didn't. But if I had sold it, yeah, yeah. it's pretend. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that is. Yeah. All right. Um, that's a good one. And my final one is. Um, what, what's a good one? My final one. It said something to do. Oh, it's that. It's that. And I've talked about this on on this podcast, so it's getting less. But it's that time where I told my boss Clark that her mother didn't call and her mom oh, yeah. did call. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So for those new listeners, it was so dumb. Uh, my my, we had a call tracker. I was I was the assistant to this woman, and her mother called, and I forgot that her mother called, and I didn't put it in the call tracking system, and she confronted me, and I lied about it, and she continued to confront me, and I continued to lie we had a voice test where she called oh my god her mom called and like listened to me and the other girl in the office voice to see it was it's so embarrassing to think I let it get to that point oh that is my well you know something so you you have told that story in the podcast before but there was another story that you told on the podcast that I I had to cut out I forget now why um but about the pants so you oh, got Okay, so I'll just tell that story real quick. So in oh yeah, that is that was on my list. Um but in um the theater school, we had to do movement to music as you know and you'll listen to our our thing with John Jenkins, our teacher, but um we had to wear pants that were like flowy. You couldn't wear jeans and I didn't have jeans. I mean, I I forgot my pants and Christine Christine, I won't say her last name. I don't know why. She's a victim in this whole thing. <laughs> she let me, Christine let me some pants and I borrowed her pants. These, I remember black, it was a so like 90s black flowy pants with a, with a, mm-hmm. the elastic waist, like so flowy mm-hmm. rayon, total rayon. 
And I, mm-hmm. and I borrow the pants and then I proceeded to lose the pants. And she proceeded to ask me for the pants every day and call my house and say, and Gita, you started making fun of the whole situation because <laughs> then you would call and leave me a message and say, it's not really about the pants, but it's about the pants. And so the pants became this thing. And I'm so embarrassed. I just kept giving her the runaround about these pants. And, and to this day, and then I left, I left class. And I went to the East Coast, and I still never cleared the air with Christine about the pants. <laughs> well, you know what's also really funny to me about that story is I identify, not now, but at that time, with her at repeatedly asking you for the pants because you took a pair of my shoes one time, my dance go clog, <laughs> and you're like, can I just borrow these? And I, I don't, maybe I didn't call you about it, but I thought about calling you. I thought about it every day for such a long time. Like I loved those clogs. They were box clogs. No, no. My point is like, I, yeah. And I understand like at that time, it's like, I couldn't have afforded to buy a new pair of clogs. Maybe that's the difference now, but I, but what I really relate to, like in that, when you tell that story, I feel embarrassment more for identifying with the Christine character, which is like, you know, like just, I don't know how to describe it. It's like you just get something in your head and you just, I mean, you were doubling down on your lie about it, but she was doubling down. Like she couldn't let it go. Neither one of you could let yeah, it go. Yeah, we couldn't let it go. And I, I couldn't say, I mean, I think uh, most of my problems in life can come down to saying just to the person, look, I owning, owning your shame and the mistake. Like, look, I lost these or I don't want to give them back to you. Whatever the case may be, and I, I, that's just the truth of the matter. It's like just mm-hmm. owning the fact that you're not going to find them or give them back rather than do this whole runaround about, yeah. I would, I kept saying to her, like, I'm looking for the pants. I'm going to put up a note saying, did anyone find the pants? I lost the pants. Like that's the end. And I should just pay for the pants and let's move on. And move on with it. So. Yeah, no, that's Today on the podcast, we have Allison Zell, who is an MFA directing student when Boz and I were at the theater school, and she's gone on to not only direct for theater, but also for film, and she is an editor, a Cracker Jack editor, and really she's just an artist of all stripes, including she's recently become a jewelry maker and designer, which is very interesting. So anyway, please enjoy our interview with Allison Zell. Hey. Hi. Hello. I'm good. Oh my God, you're you? the same. Guys, you me too. Um, one iota. Thank you. You flatter. <laughs> <laughs> so, Allison, congratulations. You survived theater school. And I think you are our first. Well, no, I guess you. Nick Bowling was our first director. Right. But um, you're. Uh, the first director that I have worked with that we're yeah. having on. So, so I mean, tell us everything. Why did oh you pick God. directing? Where do I start? <laughs> why you. did I pick? Yeah. Why did I pick directing? Um, well, uh, I remember actually a very specific moment why I chose it, which was I was studying acting in London at the time on a uh, junior year abroad thing. And uh, 
the head of my theater department was visiting and we went to a pub and she was just, I was sorry, she was just sitting there. I was going on and on and on and on and on and on about like all these things I was thinking about and that I didn't know what to do for my final year when I came back and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And she was just like, Allison, just stop. You're talking about directing. And I was like, whoa, really? <laughs> I really didn't even occur to me, really. Um, so that was that's what consolidated it. I mean, before at that point, I did direct um, just for fun. Actually, I directed uh, uh, Sam Shepard and Joe Chaikin's Savage Love. I don't know if you guys know mm -hmm, it, but it's, it's like mm -hmm. a series of poems. So it's not even really a play. But I staged it mostly because my friends weren't getting cast in plays at Vassar. So I just wanted to cast them in something. Um, and there was another thing too, that soon after that, a playwright approached me and said, I want you to direct my play. Um, but I never thought of it as a thing. And then that thing happened with the, the head of the department. And that was, that was kind of it. It sealed the deal. So, but you, so you were de headed down the acting conservatory path. Okay. I, yes. didn't, I don't, I, if I knew that I had forgotten it. So then well, does that mean you wanted to be an actor your whole life? Uh, not my whole life. And it wasn't really conservatory, but um, it was acting. I started acting late, uh, my last grade of high school, because I was really nervous for my piano exams. First, it was music. Uh, and I found I couldn't play. I was going through this in Canada. They have this national um, certification type of thing of different levels of piano. And every time I had to play, I would get so nervous and my hands would shake and I wouldn't be able to play. So I thought, oh, I'll just put myself in this theater class, which was petrifying to me. Mm -hmm. But that was my reason for going in. Uh, and we were lucky. We happened to have in our little public high school in a suburb of Montreal, we happened to have a Yale graduate who uh, put on Shakespeare plays every year. So I was cast in that, and then I entered something in um, Montreal or in all of Quebec that's called um, CEGEP, which stands for Collège d'Études Générales et Professionnelles, which is like a junior college, kind of. And in that place, there was this guy who studied with Jerzy Grotowski. Mm -hmm. you know oh, yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, so he had this little group, Grotowski group, that I was in for, it was a little cultish for like two years we love cults so that's perfect. yeah <laughs> yeah I heard I heard uh so yeah so I I that's what I was really into the 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 kind of towards a poor theater thing and stripping everything down to the actor and um that kind of thing so uh when I entered I did think I wanted to continue with that and then I entered college and um acted a little bit but it wasn't so long before um you know I had the impulse to do other stuff so it wasn't a like question. a lifelong line yeah bringing it back to the did did the acting help with the piano uh you know I don't even remember okay. <laughs> like, it just kind of took over okay it took over okay um, 
Yeah. So what do you have to do when you are applying for a directing program? I mean, Nick was telling us that he had hardly ever directed anything. So right. is it that you're you're submitting something on tape for them to see or is it just your resume? I don't think I did a tape. I remember writing a lot. I probably wrote about the productions a lot. I remember also a specific little thing that uh, for recommendations, um, one of the people I studied acting with in London uh, written this recommendation. Well, it wasn't even a recommendation. It was an evaluation that said something like, you know, there's clearly an actress in there somewhere if she would just get out of her head or just stop thinking so much that then she would come out. And I remember reframing that evaluation and writing, you know, I realize I don't want to really come out of my head. I want to think about these things more than I want to do them. I want to help other people do them. Mm. That was like a, a piece of it that I really remember. Um, other than that, I wrote a lot about Grotowski. I was really into him at the time. I remember I also got in on Cleveland. I want to say the University of Cleveland. And there was a guy there who also was into Grotowski. And he, you know, Jim was too. Jim is, I'm mm -hmm. assuming. Um, but he wasn't really teaching that so much. I guess movement to music a little bit. But this guy in Cleveland had a Grotowski company. And I got a, a free ride there. But I ultimately decided to go to Chicago. Why? Hmm. Yeah. Why? Why? Why did you choose? Well, a couple of reasons. I thought that it was, I wouldn't want to really go down the path of like totally experimental obscureness as much as it interested me. I didn't really want to have that life. Um, I was interested in more conventional theater, learning more about more conventional theater. And um, also just on a personal note my sister lives in Chicago and she had just she had two young children at the time that I thought it would be fun to hang out with so uh tell us about the, I think we we didn't ask Nick about this but I'm very no. curious to know you got to sit in on all of the casting uh yeah well we were casting ourselves exactly so yeah. what was that what was it like I mean we all have these you know I yeah, don't know, projections skewed, about what skewed, it's like. Skewed view. <laughs> what was it like for for you as a directing student to be in those? Well, one thing that I wasn't really prepared for was that um, you know we were kind of set up as the second fiddle, you know, right from the beginning, because everyone wanted to be on the main stage. And it seemed like we were kind of the consolation prize, you know, which is not the greatest place to be. So that was a little like it was clear that everyone was trying and trying and trying to do not our stuff, you know, um, so that we were uh, we were ha working with people that, you know, didn't get what they wanted. So that's kind of like not a great place to start. So um, I remember thinking during those times, like how trying to imagine how easily I could work with an actor in that situation, like how much I could overcome that, overcome the second fiddle thing. Um, 
And it was cool too. It was just great to see everybody work, you know, like it's another, an immediate window into what they're, what they're doing there, you know. But as far as like, so when it comes time to actually cast, I'm, I'm imagining oh, there's yeah. a hierarchy, like some, somebody's yes, at the top yes. and they get whoever they want. Right. Yeah. I remember the long sessions, like that we went into the night. So we, they, um, the main stage would be cast and then we'd have a group of people that wasn't cast on the main stage and me and David and Shauna, as I remember it would have to just talk it out and say who we wanted, uh, and come to consensus. And I do remember that I, at one point, learned I was being too nice. Like I had, I had an impulse to help them more than to get what I wanted um, at first, which might surprise them because I know I was very um, outspoken and strong willed at the time. I was very young. Um, I was younger than them too. But um, yeah. So I remember though, kind of having I've heard you two say this too that you guys have this thing about thinking of others um, before yourself oh, so just a little bit <laughs> so I had that a little and would do that and then I kind of got screwed you know mm-hmm. um so I remember kind of saying to myself very specifically like you have to you're you're the first person you have to look out for here so it was a little going to combat it felt like um but literally, uh, yeah. I mean, could you could you tell us literally, like, who, who who was it? Jim that got to his first pick. If he was doing a show, he'd be uh, at the top of the hierarchy. I'm not aware of the hierarchy within the faculty. Okay. I don't know. They, uh, I don't think, I don't really remember. But I don't think we were in the room with mm, them. Interesting. They okay. would yeah. do their thing. I'm pretty sure that's how it worked because I don't remember them at all with us. Um, I could be wrong about that, but yeah. So I don't know. I would imagine it's, it was uh, the same kind of thing. I don't think it would be a pecking order. And there's a lot of, I mean, in all fairness, um, despite what I said before, it was a fair process. Like it was a consensus so everybody would be like, sometimes you would convince someone like, well, you know, that would be really good for this person to do mm-hmm. this. And you'd have to kind of play that card sometimes like that. Not only would the play benefit from the actor, but the actor would benefit from the play because mm-hmm. we were thinking of you guys too. <laughs> like in terms of, in terms of what people needed to work on. Yeah. Stuff like that. Well, yeah, I want to yeah. know how is it I never got to work with you, Sean, or David Mould. Oh, really? None of us. What the well, f- I guess were you on the you no. on the main stage? No, I was somewhere well, drink, drinking malt liquor. Apparently, <laughs> just like peeing, peeing well, who, who did you work with? Well, I'll figure it out later. I just okay. I was just a shame I didn't get to to get yeah. to work with you guys. But I remember we used to hang out. Yeah, little, uh, you introduced yeah. me. You're the first person that introduced me to sushi. Really? On, uh, on Sheffield. Uh-huh. That's so funny. I, like, I have that. disgusting, disgusting. <laughs> But now I now I love it. So there you go. <laughs> yeah, I I have done that for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Um, I was like, oh, my, she's so fancy. She's into sushi. It's only because my dad did a lot of work in Japan mm-hmm. in very early on. Um, 
and he would bring back Japanese stuff to us. So when I grew up eating it, so it was for that reason. Yeah. So it didn't feel fancy, even though I know it's fancy. So you were younger than your cohort, meaning that you were closer to our age. I don't, yes. I don't, I, 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 I've tried to think back like, okay, so how old were they really? Cause in my mind, it's like anybody who's older is just older. Yeah. But were you, how old were you? When I started, uh, I was 24. Okay. So what's that like socially when you're sort of, it's sort of set up that you're hanging out with the older crew, the MFAs and stuff, but you yeah. are actually kind of closer to our age. Did you feel betwixt yeah. and between? A little bit, a little bit. Um, yeah. I, uh, I also didn't live close to the school and I pretty quickly did some work at um, Shattered Globe. Remember that mm-hmm. theater company? Hey, yeah. And I met I met someone there, um, Kristen Kasky, who is a big, big Broadway producer now. Um, and we became roommates. So I kind of had like a different mm. um, social circle thing going on. Um, so I, I, I kind of felt like on the outside of the social scene, really, at DePaul. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I had some friends. Um, you know, but I was never really, I don't think any of us, if I, any of us were really integrated into the, but I don't know for sure. I don't know what David Ishana was yes. <laughs> That's something that I, I, the first time I directed a play, I was so saddened that when, you know, a- after rehearsals and stuff, it's like, you're like the principal and they yeah. don't, they don't invite you to go hang oh, out with them. Yeah, and, and I was everybody's age, you know, the first play I directed and I'm like, well, bye. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cause it's like important for them to have, I remember in London, the teachers used to say, um, have their pub time, you right. know, on their yeah. own to, to hash things out or to complain about you right 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 <laughs> <laughs> to work it out along the right. with, some right. guinness, with some guinness now yes. I, so I love tell, guinness. T- tell guinness is like um a dark smooth hug okay but anyway <laughs> yes. so um what happened after so the theater school yeah, did you yeah. And I never asked Nick this. So we have we have a showcase and you guys have your but you do you have your final did you guys have a final show? Yes, we did. Okay. And and um Jim fought really hard uh for it to be in Victory Gardens rather than in the school. So that was really great of him. So we got to direct in Victory Gardens. Yeah. Okay. That's yeah. did you do after the fall or something? Is that what you sure? Uh, I think it was the spring because I remember there we had three shows a year. So Desdemona that you were in was my first show. I remember I had been the summer before I was uh, assistant directing in Williamstown. Mm-hmm. And it was really intense and great. But I remember thinking, I just want to do a small play and like kind of chill in the fall. Um, so oh, sorry. The- I meant after the fall. I thought you did Arthur Miller's. Uh- you did. You did. Wait, what? You did the you one did with Arthur Marilyn Miller. Monroe. Don't you remember? Oh, yeah. That's not Arthur Miller. It's not oh. Arthur Miller. <laughs> I mean, you. I understand how you would think that because Marilyn Monroe is in it. Oh. But it's by a British playwright named Terry Johnson. Oh, okay. Um, but, yes, the characters, it's called Insignificance, and the characters oh. are Marilyn Monroe, Joe DiMaggio, right. Tom McCarthy, and Einstein. Right. Um, 
Yeah. So, oh, you were asking about that. So yeah, well that year, so we did the, I did, it was the third one. I did Desdemona and then I did my own play that I wrote. Um, I don't know if you guys remember that, but it's called, called soul monsters at the time. It had so many iterations after that. Um, but yeah, and then and 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 I attribute that to Jim because I remember I wanted to do Beckett, and he was like, "You should do your play," and I really didn't feel like ready, or I felt very nervous about it. And he was very encouraging because I I had also had a um, a one woman show published in a book. I don't know if you guys, I don't know, it wasn't really like a thing at school, but um, there's Smith and Krauss puts out this. Um, annual series called women playwrights the best plays of the year and i hate to say what year i'm in so maybe i just won't but it was like <laughs> an older volume um oh it's it's 94 you know okay fuck it. Okay. <laughs> so um that was right at that time um so anyway even though that had happened, I still felt really nervous about it. Anyway, so that was my middle play. And then the last play of the year was insignificant. So your, your, your solo show play, who did it? I did initially. Yeah. Yeah. I did. I did it. um, Where did I do it first? I was at the hangar theater the summer before DePaul. I did it there first. Um, I wrote it on my way out of college. It's mainly about, because I lost my dad um, a month into my freshman year. Um, And then having to leave that place um, was really, really difficult. So, yeah, it's called Come to Leave because it was all about just reconciling the coming and going. Uh, So I wrote it just to kind of get through that initially. Uh, And then I... I performed it uh, and I actually performed it once in Chicago. I can't believe it now because it feels like another lifetime ago, but in the, remember the solo Paloozas? Did you guys were were aware of that? Yeah. Yeah. So I did it there. Um, And since then other people have performed it. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's very cool. Yeah. Was Soul Monster something you were workshopping at DePaul? Uh, it was a workshop. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, it, were you, you were workshopping it, it oh, as a writer? I wish, you know, the process wasn't great. Um, I'm still very I'm glad I did it. And I'm thankful for Jim to, for, you know, supporting me in that. But it was, I didn't really have, t- it was like, I'm not sure if it was ready or I was ready, but I don't know. On the other hand, I feel like, who's to say that who's really right, but, and who's ready right yeah but like being the director and the writer it was very difficult for me like I couldn't really I mean I tried I did rewrites and I tried to do that but the actors needed to learn the lines you know like I never workshopped it just in like a reading situation mm-hmm. which it could have very much benefited from so it was like doing it all at once. But I did, it carried on in life after in New York. And I ended up um, uh, doing a reading here that really helped me out with it. Um, and I was really lucky to get, um, do you guys know who James Urbaniak is? Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, yeah, I recognize the name. Yeah. So he was the the main doctor 
and um, some other great actors, more theater actors in New York. And I, I got to work that out. That thing you said about learning the lines made me think the first play I ever wrote was like that. It was like this thing that we kind of developed together. And the actors kept saying, could we have a script? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, it'd be like, it's not ideal. Yes. All, almost, almost. And I gave everybody the script <laughs> on opening night. I was like, I know you don't really need this, but since you're asking for it. <laughs> Opening night. Yeah, it was like your your gift, opening night gift. This okay. script. So, <laughs> I have a question. So, uh, after you graduated from DePaul, yeah, what happened? Where yeah. did you go? I moved to New York. Okay, uh, and I was lucky. Actually, I mentioned my roommate, former roommate Kristen. She was working with uh, another. Uh, now big producer in New York who was on the board at the public theater mm. and they got me an internship there. So I was an intern there and I was directing my little butt off um, wherever I could. Um, a lot of off, off Broadway stuff. Uh, but it, it, uh, so it was, it was good. I had to stay. I, that turned into a job at the public theater. Uh, I actually helped to open Joe's pub. I don't know if you guys oh, wow. know. Oh, wow. Of course. Yeah. So Joe's Pub, that was during my time there. And I was the only full-time staff member that was just devoted to Joe's Pub. And then uh, I put together my one-woman show. I said someone else, you know, uh, performed it. So with a different actress. And this, this little-known uh, radio play, actually, by Susan Laurie Parks. It's in her first volume of plays, but it's, I, I got, I met Susan Laurie Parks because of my connections. This woman named Bonnie Metzger at the public theater is really great and a big producer, director, and she, they're friends. So uh, she gave me permission to do this. So it was like a two, two one woman plays. They were kind of, um, was called She Keeps Time, The Evening because it was a little, hers is also about letting go um, and hanging on, you know, to certain things while you're letting go. And um, that is a kind of beacon for me uh, thinking about the past because it did very well. I mean, the times came because of Susan Laurie's piece, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. And it was, we got a really nice review in the times. Um, that was kind of the pinnacle of my directing in New York. Um, but what happened afterwards is unusual because I, by that time I was already feeling like I was kind of exploiting actors to be honest and, and designers. Like I was already getting weary of working with all people for free, like not being able to pay people for their work um, and not get paid, but it was more thinking of, the situation because I felt responsible for it. Uh, so I was very impatient when that review came out. I thought, okay, you know, this is it. The things right. are going to change now. And then sending it out to agents and all of that. And that just it didn't happen quickly. And around that time, I met my now husband, who is a filmmaker. And he was editing a film at the time. And I went into an edit room for the first time in my life and was like, whoa, 
<laughs> I like this, you know, and he said, you should try it. So I said, okay. So I did that. I switched. I just like totally switched. Cause I was like, I want to tell stories when I'm in the edit room. I'm not, you know, taking advantage of anybody or exploiting anybody. Um, and I can tell stories because as you guys know, that's where the stories really get told. So I, I ended up, because I had a lot of connections, it went well. I direct, uh, edited, sorry, a few feature films somewhere in the Tribeca Film Festival. Some got bought by Showtime and ABC Family and like different. Anyway, so I just totally, I was like, I can't deal with this just when I probably could have done something, you know, um, I ran out of patience, um, and kind of shifted my interest a little bit. So I did that for a long time. And then that kind of ran out too, but that's another story about what I'm doing now. I don't know if we got, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, um, I edited a lot and then I realized it, it was a, a reality TV time I mean it always is it still is but at that time was I realized like if I was really to make a living at this I would have to get majorly into reality tv and I was um going to meet someone on a cop show and I just remember thinking like I don't want to do a cop show like (laughs) what's happening now what's happening you know and I was starting to hear about something called user experience design um, and it's called user experience because they're very much, um, I say they, cause I ended up doing something a little different, but, um, they're very much advocates of the user quote unquote, because people, it's a very different way of thinking. Like if the person who is coding and actually like building the digital product isn't necessarily thinking of the person that's going to use it at the end. They're just thinking like, I'm going to get this thing done. Um, And if it's a business behind it, people are thinking, how can I make money at this thing? So it's this unusual situation where someone actually has to stand up and say, wait a minute, there's another person there. And that's the user experience part of it. So I ended up becoming a content strategist is what they call me. Because the user experience designer works on on the functionality of websites, like Mm -hmm. what it's going to look like and how you're going to move through it. But um, they don't really handle the content. So what I do is I work with mostly language, but also video, images, audio, um, to make websites like as as, uh, easy and useful and, when I'm lucky, fun as possible for that person that's using it. Wow. So this is, so the theme here is you're the conduit between the maybe uh, difficult to make sense of material and the, and the person. So it was the playwright and the audience. You're the, yeah. you're the conduit between those two things. That's and interesting. So I guess that's what really where your skill set is and what, what ignites you? In, I in guess terms so. Of I've never really thought of it that way. That's cool, Gina. Yeah. Um, I, I have, I thought about it in terms of like making like familiar things or unfamiliar things familiar. For some mm-hmm. reason, I was really obsessed with that idea in college, but I never really thought about it in terms of like 
the conduit between uh, a subject that's maybe hard to to grasp and the audience. Yeah. Are you at all? Do you, do you, when you switch like from when directing to editing to being the strategist, um, do you miss the other thing once you've left it behind? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, not initially, because usually at the pivot point, I'm really wanting to do something different because I'm, I'm also just very curious, wanting to learn all the time kind of person. So at the beginning, no, but then yes. And I'm at this point, frankly, you know, I wanted the, the main reason why I pivoted into content strategy and another thing called user experience writing, which I do, is money. Uh, I mean, I have a filmmaker husband and I have two children. So at one point I realized I really needed to become the main breadwinner of the family. So that's what I did. And it was interesting. And I got to do like you pointed out, now I'm going to use it, you know, like still be a conduit between these two things. But um, I really miss both of them at this mm-hmm. point. And that's why I started to write because um, I want to, I'd love to get back to doing something more in the performing arts or, or entertainment. Um, but I can't complain because I have, it's a very, it's not a very demanding job Um or I should say it's a really good like work-life balance job is what I should say. It is, it is demanding when I'm in it. Just recently took a break from writing and started um, designing jewelry. Oh, my god! Which I'm goodness. now showing you. This is a ring that I designed. Wow, how cool. I'm a, ju- I'm a jewelry nut. Do you sell oh, it? Oh, really? I uh, know. Not yet. <laughs> but yeah, I did a ring and I did these earrings. I know nobody can see that see them. Oh, on that's radio, beautiful. But, yeah. Um, so I've been doing that too. Do you have them on an Instagram or something like that where people yes. can check them out? Yes. They're on so, my Instagram. So it's is it just your name? Uh, it's just my name. Yeah. Allison Eve. So, so I'm obsessed with two things, pivoting okay. and resilience. Those are my, because I feel like, especially as women, everyone I know has had to have those two things in their back pocket, learned the easy way or the hard way, how to do those things. Yeah. So I guess my first question for you is where do you find your resilience? I mean, <laughs> how, how, how does it come that, I mean, you obviously lost your father at a young age and mm-hmm. you and pivoting takes resilience. So I guess right. I would ask you, where does your resilience come from? Oh, boy. Um, where does it come from? I think it's just an instinct, you know, like um, I am pretty uncomfortable with uh, with like, like, for example, even just admitting that I miss the other two, like the editing and the directing. Uh, is really hard for me because being in a place of an emotional place like that, I mean, I guess I'll say being vulnerable, uh, that hasn't ever been my strong suit. So a way to get out of the vulnerability is like, okay, what am I going to do now? All right. What's happening? Like, what do I need to do to get from A to B? Um, To, I I would say maybe even to a fault, um, to be honest. Uh, but that's just ingrained in me. I think ever since I've been a kid, I I was kind of left to my own devices in many ways. Um, so I have two older siblings 
And um, by the time I came around, you know, it's like uh, it was 10 and eight years later. It was mm-hmm. kind of like, uh, you know, <laughs> Good luck. So, yeah, <laughs> I mean, not exactly, but, you know, um, I, I had to generate a lot of stuff on my own. That that thing that you were talking about earlier about getting when you were just at the point where maybe you could have gotten something going and you got impatient and it wasn't happening. I, I think that 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 has to be part, if not if not of every single artist's experience, the preponderance of them because it, it especially in theater. I mean, it's it's crazy to me to think that you have connections to the public and to Susan Lurie Parks, and to people who are really at the forefront of making theater happen. And, 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 and I'm sure if we had Susan Lurie Parks in here, she'd be talking about how you never get to rest, you never get to say, yeah. and now I've made it, which is why everybody ends up going to Hollywood, because it's, it's, it, it's so impossible. And I, and yeah. I, I shudder to think what it's like now, what it's going to be like post-pandemic, however, how it's all going to shake out. But um, yeah, it's this thing where that people don't talk about that much, uh, uh, where it becomes like basically a math problem of, well, can you afford to just keep hoping that you're going to make it big in theater? Or are you like (laughs) 99.9% of the world and you have to get a job? It's very sad. The truth is, and I had someone tell me this early on too, I don't think you really can make it in theater. Um, Casey Childs, who now runs primary stages, um, I remember I assisted him or I can't remember the circumstances where I met him, but he was directing soap operas at the time. And I remember him telling me that there's you can't really do this with just theater. You have to find something else you know mm-hmm. um at least in new york you know so yeah. but that's yeah that's interesting i just i just couldn't uh i couldn't handle the it wasn't it like i said it wasn't just me like what i was doing but i just didn't feel comfortable like contributing to other people's mm-hmm. dissatisfaction right you know I right. wanted to be the person to say, and I'm going to pay you, you know? Right. And well, I, it's, yeah. Yeah, it feels abusive at a certain point to, to, to be the person that is, is, is it's just, it's an abusive system in terms right. of how theater works. And, and it's interesting that we all chose to go to a conservatory to do the thing that is like impossible to do. Yeah. 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 So I always say, like, should there even be conservatories anymore? Because mm-hmm. there's no, you know, like, that's my thing is like, would you send your daughters to a conservatory if they wanted to be conservatory trained actors, directors, writers, whatever? I don't know. I don't know what the answer would be because I, you know, but it's just, we went to school for an impossible thing almost. And yet right. I wouldn't trade it. I, I, I learned a lot. We always say, we, I, you know, we learned in other ways, you know, we learned so many things, but it was a setup for misery. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was kind of an interesting uh, little anecdote, I think, because um, so, well, there's a few little anecdotes. One <laughs> is that uh, I became like, I it was my first time out, outside of the East Coast right? Because I'm Montreal's on the East Coast and I went to school in New York. And um, 
New York state. But, uh, so I wasn't, I became aware of myself in a very different way and it was brought to my attention. I remember this one in particular time, I won't name names, but there was someone who said something very rude to me in class and I stormed out and Jim knew how upset I was because he came after me. And I remember Jim saying to me, like, Allison, you just have to understand he doesn't know what to do with you because you're like a small, intellectual Jewish woman. And I remember as soon as he said that, I couldn't hear anything else he said after because I was like, I am, (laughs) you know, like I never, I mean, clearly I am, but I never thought of myself like that. And which is putting, taking myself out of the East coast. Of course, that's the first thing that people see. Um, So anyway, it became kind of like a theme, like not knowing what to do with me a little bit. Um, And also, I wasn't. I I, um, I I I wasn't really focusing on working with actors so much on that point. Uh, at that point, I think I was a little bit more caught up with like the, the visual of of and telling the story visually. Um, so anyway, my point is that Jim kind of assigned me to Rick. Has, it was a little bit like throwing up his hands, like, I don't know what I need. I need your help. I don't know what to do with her. I mean, like, that's what it was. Um, and that was when I did that secret rapture that Tate mentioned, TJ mentioned, the secret rapture by David Hare. And uh, it was very different for me. I remember not liking it very much because it was very slow, but which it was, but everyone else could recognize it as like me having, because I think I did having a breakthrough with actors mostly due to Rick and um, his guidance in that play. A breakthrough Mm. in what way? Uh, Just really focusing on the acting, you know, Uh, and words like intention are something that were always thrown around. I've heard, I heard before, but I feel like I became, uh, aware of it on a different level of what what it actually means in practice um, more than I ever did, and I was working with some great actors in that. You know, it was uh, T.J. and Jen, D.D. and Heather Collington. I'm going to forget people. Amy Lewis. Yeah, Amy Lewis. Uh-huh. Uh You know, um, so it was it was a good. A good experience just kind of not worrying about anything really besides the performances I see so you're saying that your your whole focus had just been on the stage picture More and it so, hadn't yeah. been on pr- giving the actors an in to how they're gonna which is funny because like you totally need buy-in from the actors about how yeah. I remember I directed under Milkwood and I was very, I, I had a similar thing of like, cause it was just so important since it's this heightened language and it's a radio play. So it was so important for me to make the most compelling stage picture. Right. But yet you forget that you need to be able to tell the actors, no, but there's a reason why I'm having you, 
look like you're the mast of a ship. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. And there's a yeah. reason that's beyond there's a reason that's beyond I want you to look like the mast of a ship because you're tall and skinny. Right. And, and, I, and I and I might have to make up what your intention is for being the mast of the ship. <laughs> but that's my job. I have to do that. Right, right. Yeah. I I I the first play I directed was called Spectre. I don't know if you guys saw oh, it. Oh, yes. H.K. and Anne-Marie Welty in a yes. car. And I felt like I did pretty well with that one because it's small. Like I could do it with one person or with two people. What I mean is doing it like focusing on the picture and the acting. Mm-hmm. But then I went from that to Greek tragedy in the courtyard. I don't know if you remember that. Right. Called Regarding Electra. The reason why I chose it was because I was trying to find a way in make to make work more personal for for me. And I was really into Greek mythology and Greek um, tragedy in college. And Electra is this figure that, you know, lost Mm -hmm. her father. So it was very conscious of me, like, I'm going to try to focus on this character of Electra. Um, But I just it was like just. Um, all about the spectacle of being in the in the courtyard, you know. Mm-hmm. So, so, and then I also did, uh, which was Harvey. Oh yeah, you did yeah. Harvey. I did. I did. I casted Rachel. I was trying to remember Rachel's last name. I can't remember it for the life of me. Rachel Blonde. Rachel MFA. Rachel. Um, yeah, Rachel. Um, anyway, I tried to look it up, but I I couldn't find her. Um, but that was my big thing was like realizing that it was written during World War II by a woman. And I thought this is so interesting. Like all the men were gone, basically. So I wonder if, you know, I'm good. I'm going to cast Elwood as a woman just to see what happens. Oh, Um, that's who played. That's okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, but I, so I also it was my first stab at like really traditional theater. And I mm-hmm. had this idea of it being very like, I don't know how to like, um, just kind of presentational and, and like a pretty picture. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I got into like, I had, I was working with set designer that was more into props then she was like one of her first times doing a set. And so everything was like, you know, period wallpaper, period things, you know, um, was more in a, a, like about that. And then the period costumes were fun. But again, it was like focusing on these external things. And I, my other anecdote is about, um, about Joe, because in my mind, I was like, okay, this is, I'm doing more like Joe's kind of theater, you know, mm-hmm, now so mm-hmm. I really want Joe to come. And um, when I met with him after he, after I sat down and he literally said, why did you want me to come to that? Ooh. Yeah. That's where it Ouch. started. And I was put on the spot, but I'm pretty proud of what I managed to say was that, that I wanted to learn. That's why I wanted him to come because I know I have a lot to learn about that style of theater and you're the expert and I want to learn from you. And that changed, changed the conversation. Wow. 
he was like, oh, okay. Well, you know, basically it stunk. And these are the reasons why, you know, but, um, but it was a good moment because um, it was, you know, it's a truth. It's like, it's a weird thing for directors. I think Um, maybe for actors too, you guys can tell me, but you're there to learn, you know, that's why we're there. So we had, I, I remember feeling like with these plays that we had to put up that they were, they weren't really learning instruments. They were like, the expectation was you're doing this thing. You're casting right. some of the actors and you're going to do this thing. And, um, you know, I wouldn't have chosen if I, I would have chosen different plays if I wasn't there to learn. Like my first play that I chose, the Spectre play with PJ and Anne-Marie, I knew I could do, you know? And then I thought, I'm at school. I'm just going to choose these crazy, this wild, big Greek tragedy and Harvey and all these things. I don't know what the hell I'm doing with because that's why I'm here. I'm here to learn, you know? And then I kind of went back with Insignificance and a little bit with Desdemona too, to things that felt more comfortable. But my second year was all about like. Well, that is pretty amazing to me that you were brave enough to say, I'm going to learn. That was not my approach to school. My approach to school was I'm going to try to do exactly what everybody wants. So I don't get into any trouble. And that's what <laughs> a lot of actors, but, but you're, you bring up yeah. a very good point that we were there. It's schooling and that's where you're supposed to learn and fail and grow. I did mm-hmm. not experience that because of what I brought to the table, but that you were able to say, you know what, I'm going to learn. Like, that's why I'm doing this. That's a huge risk that I did not take in my schooling. I took no risks because I was petrified. So mm-hmm. I don't know. That's, yeah, it's a good thing. I think it's a good thing. Do you have any thoughts about being a female in the directing program? And if your experience was any different that, yeah. that you could observe because of that? Yeah. Um, at that time, I was thinking about this before this uh, interview, because I'm much more aware of that now and became more aware of it in New York. Um, and I was aware, you know, like my last play, that insignificance play, Jim told me that a lot of women were pissed at me that I chose a play with one woman and that woman was Marilyn Monroe, you know? A lot of women um, in the acting actors. program? Yes. Oh. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think there was an expectation of me also coming off of Desdemona with the three women that I would provide more roles for women, you know. But that just wasn't where my head was at the time. Um, I do, though, remember in terms of like just kind of the pedagogy of directing, like learning directing before I think before he got the idea of of um, asking Rick to to work with me Jim gave me a copy of Summer and Smoke to read or I told me to find it and read and um, I don't you guys know that play yes I don't I don't know it very very well anymore but it's it's like a an older male mentor and a younger female um, learning from the older male mentor. He was giving I'm, it to you to do or? Yes. Oh, he was oh, giving okay. it, suggesting it, suggesting that I consider it to do. He didn't force it to his credit at all when I said I didn't like it um, because I was just not into, not into it at all. 
But mm-hmm. in terms of the gender thing, it felt very like a gender moment, which yeah. it may not have been, but that's what it felt like. Right. Um, yeah. That's, that's uh, weird. It's kind of weird. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I again, well, I just I think there was part. I mean, he knew. Uh, he was, you know, uh, we were pretty close, and he taught me a lot. But I think there was a certain point too where he didn't know what to do with me. Well, it no, reminds right. me of him saying to you, "You're a small intellectual Jewish woman." Like, right? We actually had another guest talk about. A, a moment of being told how they were perceived and, and mm-hmm. that being like a great disappointment to her. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that there's a lot more of that that happens for women mm-hmm. in general, mm-hmm. like, you know, this, and, and in theater school, it can always be presented to you as like, well, this is something you need to know in order to navigate your way in the world. But at the same time, I'm trying to remember a moment of like somebody telling Alex Scooby, well, you know, you're you're a tall. When people look at you, they see a tall New Jersey, whatever, Meat whatever, head. Meat yeah, head or whatever. yeah, right. yeah. Right. And the way that I feel like it was done a lot yeah. to the women, and it's just. I mean, we talk a lot about it. The time, the time, the time, the time. Even though when we mm-hmm. were coming up, I really felt like it was this post-feminist thing, and and it was all all this gender stuff was was over. Because obviously mm. I, I didn't have the faintest clue <laughs> what I was talking about. <laughs> but looking at it now, I see, oh, yeah. So, like, there was, like, a couple of categories for women to exist in. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and if you were sort of near to that category but not exactly in it, people were always just trying to put you there. Right, the, right. And the, yeah. the other thing that really stands out is that every – not every single uh, – many people we talk to say – they didn't know what to do with me, which is no. really interesting because yeah. we can't all have felt. I mean, we if, if, <laughs> the majority of people felt like that. It means they didn't know what to do with anybody yeah, for whatever reason. That's a problem. But also they didn't know what to do with me is like, yeah, they accepted us into this program. So right. maybe they should have, you know, it's it's just so fascinating that we that more people than not had the experience of they didn't know what to do with me. And I'm right. like, how can that be? The numbers don't really add up if we're all feeling that mm-hmm. way. So it's just and I think it I think Beans is right. It's like the time we went to school, the way that academia worked at that time, the way that conservatories and it's I teach there now, um in in the I've taught, well, I shouldn't say I teach there. I've taught, I've taught last year and I'm teaching this year for BFA oh. for acting, but um, it's different. It's a different place, but we very went, we went to school as a very specific time that is fascinating because like being said, I thought, oh, I thought sexism and racism and, and all, all the isms were done, but then right. <laughs> oh, yeah, right, right. <laughs> I have three things I want to say about all of that. Okay. Um, the first is that, in all fairness, when Jim said that to me, he said it trying to console me because I remember yeah. the circumstances. Right. I was like, right. what the fuck just happened? Right. Like, how dare he say that to me? And he was trying to not really make an excuse, but just like talk me down because um, I'm not sure he would have said it to me in a different circumstance, but I just needed to say that. Sure. Um but the other thing I think had to do, like when you guys say, 
you know, didn't know what to do with me. Like, how could that be that I think we leaving out is the, the plays. I mean, just like what plays were out there, mm. you know, mm. the, the body of work and maybe it was there and it wasn't, they weren't aware of it as much, but I think to a certain degree it wasn't there as much too. Right. But it kind of, to me comes trickles down from there in many ways. Like he gave me Tennessee Williams because that's what he knew. And he right. recognized something, you know, in that character that in me, which makes sense. I was a very young person coming in, you know, um, the, how many choices were there really, you know, right. I think right. it's part of it too. Um, I, I agree. I think, I think that's why, you know, Beans and I started writing for television yeah. and film. It's like, wait a second. And I, like- I, yeah, yeah. And why, and why we have, for me, why my vision is, you know, to be a showrunner is that it starts from the top on down and it's like, mm. Oh, cool. That's where you got to start now because I was yeah. like, okay, I'm digging and digging and digging as an actor. It's not working out. Okay. <laughs> Let me go to another field. And yeah. dig, I'm going to do something else yeah. over there. So yeah. anyway. Yeah. Be a showrunner. That's cool. Mm-hmm. The end. Yeah. Another thing that we are constantly saying here is like everybody has to make their own shit. That's just the yeah. end of the, that's just like the final common pathway for all of this. Make your own shit. Do your own thing. Don't wait for somebody to pick you to do their thing. Yeah. I Survive Theater School is an Undeniable Inc. production. Jen Bosworth Ramirez and Gina Polici are the co-hosts. This episode was produced, edited, and sound mixed by Gina Polici. Follow us on Instagram at Undeniable Writers or on Twitter at Undeniable W-R-I-T-1. That's Undeniable Write without the E-1. Thanks.